recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. Hang on a second here, folks. That's right. Hang on a second. Michael Colligan, co-host of Starving for Darkness here. Just to tell you real quick before we get into the conversation, which is super important for you to hear, that you need to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, especially if you're a contractor or a distributor, Greg Eric. That's right. And they're coming out with a new exterior line of product, or they have come out with it, and they're going to continue to add to it, and they're dedicated to making dark sky friendly lighting uh, and potentially dark sky compliant as we go. For now, though, they do have a dark sky full cutoff wall pack, a variety of wattages, Kelvin temperatures, and a precision crafted optical lens that's ideal for increased fixture spacing and uniformity. So less lighting fixtures needed because it, it can provide more light out of the one fixture. So check that out. Go to keystonetech.com. That's right. Hold on. Here comes Starving for Darkness. But before, K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, and I'm here with my co-host, Michael Colligan. We are so pleased to have our guest here today, Frank Tarina, a PhD in environmental policy from the University of Colorado. Frank is an experienced program manager with over 30 years experience in government and environmental consulting, including 15 years with the National Park Service Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division. I'm so excited to dig into this with you today, Frank. We ask all of our guests the same question to start off the podcast, which is, please tell us a time or an experience that you had underneath the night sky that was particularly, and I say that because you are under the night sky so often, <laughs> but particularly profound for you, um, that really just made you feel awe. Um, so please, please tell us about an experience that comes to mind. Yeah, I actually had a recent experience um, it, about two weeks ago. We live in, in my, my, wife, my wife and I live in um, sort of a small town just west of Denver up in the mountains. And um, we were poised to get a 12-inch snowstorm a couple of weeks ago. And, and our, you know, dealing with snowstorms in uh, April is much more difficult <laughs> uh, psychologically than dealing with a snowstorm in, say, December or something, right? So, mm -hmm. so our response to this impending snowstorm was just to get out of town, uh, and uh, we decided to go to the desert. Uh, so southern Utah, that area in the, the high desert is just one of my favorite places, and I wanted to take some pictures of some night sky, uh, some Milky Way shots, and so we jumped in the Jeep and headed to, to Utah, and uh, we wanted to go to Capitol Reef National Park because... I hadn't been there, and when I was with the Park Service, there was, uh, you know, that was one of the darkest sites that we had measured. It's definitely one of the darkest par parks in the uh, continental U.S. So I was kind of excited to see it. So we drove 
you know, not, this guess it's probably about a seven hour drive to get there. And, uh, of course we got there and it was overcast. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but we got, but we, the, I knew the Milky Way wasn't rising until about 3 AM and, um, you know, our weather app said it was going to clear around midnight. So we, uh, got up and it was like, you know, it was clear, thankfully. And, um, we got in the car, drove into the park and we pulled off at this spot, uh, called uh, Panorama Point. And we had driven by it earlier in the day and it was just really had a good uh, horizon. There were some really interesting rock formations and I thought that'd be a good place to go, get some pictures. So we got, went there and um, when we pulled in, I, you know, I told my wife like, just, let's, just keep your eyes closed for like 20 minutes and just sit here. Mm. And while she was doing that, I went and grabbed a couple of big sleeping pads and a really thick, warm sleeping, uh, uh, like sleeping bag and just threw them on the ground and went and got her. And I guided her to the, uh, to the, to this makeshift bed. And, um, we laid there and I said, okay, let's just like give it 10 more minutes with our eyes closed. And then I counted to three and we both opened our eyes at the same time. And, what we saw was just, I, I mean, it's hard to describe. It It was so mm. dark. It was, uh, you know, with our eyes adjusted and, um, you know, the clear sky and uh, it was, it was, the detail was just amazing. Uh, you know, I could, you know, when I first opened my eyes, I got this um, almost a sense of like vertigo, like it mm. was dizzying. You know, you look at you, there were, it, the, the depth of the stars and the depth of the night sky was so intense that it sort of made you feel like you were falling almost. And I think at one point I actually put my hand on the ground just to, to like stabilize myself and to steady myself. It was, it was like I'd never seen that before. And um, I started looking bet- like at these dark areas kind of between the stars and mm-hmm. When the more I kind of stared in those areas, I realized that there are actually like more stars between these stars, right? In the dark areas, it's just more and more stars the deeper you look. And, um, you know, like I never had seen or experienced that before. And the other thing that really struck me was, so in the, the core of the Milky Way, there's a dark nebula that most people call it the prancing horse. Um, it's also called the pipe nebula, but it looks like a horse. It has got, you know, it's... Um, and I've seen it really, it stands out in most images of the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it's really prominent. You can, you know, it, and I've seen it with a naked eye a couple of times, but I had never seen it like this. Like I could see the front legs, I could see the back legs, I could see the body and the neck. And, and there's these dark um, clouds, these streamers that go from the front legs over to this sort of reddish star called Antares and I could see those and I and it's hard to see those in good photographs and I could see it with a naked eye and I, I was just astonished and I think just to to be there um, with my wife staring at that and um, you know just soaking it all in I think it was certainly one of those sort of profound moments I've had under the night sky and I know this is something that you know, my wife and I will remember forever. Uh, it was just one of those moments. Wow, that's incredible. Your description of the night sky is incredible. You know, I, I've said it before, Mike, Jane. Thank you. I've said it before, like, there's a reason why our ancestors uh, sent burnt, burned lamb smoke up 
to the heavens, okay? And they, when you look, when you read the Bible or you read about, you know, people in the past, why they did these types of things, if you haven't seen a sky like that, you don't understand why they did that. It's, it's, it's awe-inspiring. Like what you just described. Really I think that's is. the best one, Jane. That's the best one so far. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Honestly, you did take the cake there on your description of the night well, sky. Uh, and I, a couple things for listeners who may not know, but the reason I'm assuming that you were closing your eyes was to allow the full adaptation of your eye to the nighttime environment to take place. And there's an interesting yep. fact in there, which is um, if you've ever looked at a star and if you look right at it, you can't see it as well as if you look just over to the left. And the reason is because at the center of your focal uh, point of view is all of your cones and cones are for, for really well lit environments. On your periphery is where your rods are and your rods are much more sensitive to lower light levels. So when you actually move your eye, your focus to a little bit to the side, you allow your rods to pick up that light. So it's just an interesting fact about actually viewing the night sky with your, your eyes, which have um, you know, a distribution of, of different photoreceptors in your, um, in your retina. So um, now, Frank, I want to hear about your life's work and how you got to where you are now, which is you are the founder of the um i of the night i'm sorry i'm losing it on my paper here um but but tell tell me about your work here and how you got to where you are being a dark sky advocate sure um so it's the night so sky resource center i was going to say word. it i was going to say yeah, it sorry. <laughs> i'm looking at the site right now but yes <laughs> yeah yeah that's great yeah. um so i i had started in um you know doing environmental consulting um in a couple of different areas one environment like Back in the 90s, everybody was working on Superfund and hazardous waste. Uh, that kind of dried up in the mid-90s, and I transitioned into writing environmental impact statements uh, and worked for a pretty big uh, civil engineering firm that did a lot of highway projects. And those projects involved a lot of noise analyses. Uh, so I worked with noise analysts and tried to incorporate their analysis into the environmental impact statements. So I got a little taste of, of um, sort of the noise world. Uh, and uh, when I was looking for um, sort of to another opportunity, I saw the, there, was an op there was a position available with the National Park Service for a brand new program um, that was dealing with noise pollution in national parks. Uh, and so I, with my little bit of background in, in noise analysis, I ended up getting that position uh, and worked for Probably the first, that was in 2006, and up until about 2010, that was primarily our focus was just noise issues and dealing with helicopter mm -hmm. tours over parks. Um, about 19, or about 2010, um, we adopted this little program in the Park Service that at the time consisted mainly of two people uh, that was dealing with night sky preservation. and. Um, you know, we, they were growing a little bit and they were kind of looking for a home. It, it, it had just been um, two guys that worked in different parks that shared this interest and, and uh, they started figuring out how to measure national uh, night skies, how to manage them, how to, you know, reduce light pollution in parks. Uh, and, you know, they, they 
started to get a little bit of funding from the from the headquarters and and they were looking but they didn't have a real place within the structure of, of park service mm. um so it the powers that be sort of put them combined them with our um noise program and mm. we became the natural sounds and night skies division uh, so i when when that happened um you know my portfolio there really expanded and i had to become kind of an expert in light and light pollution and um and you know managing nightscapes and things like that so um it was a it was a real challenge it was a huge learning curve for a few years uh and then we started developing um you know models for uh assessing night sky quality we started started working with parks to try to um, minimize the light pollution within parks working with other you know cities and and towns outside of parks to try to minimize the impacts of their lights on the park resources uh, so it sort of expanded really quickly over you know from 2010 to you know to, to current um and um you know so we started again sort of with the noise side of it and then sort of added the the um the night sky side uh, and then i just left the park service uh last september uh just to try to you know to, to sort of explore some other opportunities uh and started the um night sky resource center uh to, to kind of combine my um my love of astrophotography uh and nightscape mm -hmm. photography with um sort of advocating for protection of the night sky resource were you doing astrophotography before or after you combined the natural sounds and night skies division? When did that come in for you? So I, you know, as part of that learning curve for me, you know, I, I had a, a good handle kind of theoretically and conceptually about night skies and how light interacts with the atmosphere. Um, but I, I didn't have any real practical experience with that. And so, Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that I wanted to get into astrophotography is to sort of gain some of that um, that practical experience with the night sky and with light and understanding how, you know, light pollution affects astronomical images and, um, you know, and, and sort of it also kind of forced me to get out there a lot of nights, almost every clear night to, mm. you know, and I learned the night sky that way. I learned the constellations, the major stars, that type of thing. So it was part of, um, it was a goal of mine to kind of, you know, help me get up that learning curve. Mm -hmm. You said, you said something really interesting that um, I haven't heard before. Oftentimes, like I'm in the lighting industry and so is Jane. And so we're coming at it from that perspective. And we've talked about a paradigm shift where the, the lighting industry is going to begin to provide darkness to people, which is an interesting shift of paradigms, right? But you said that the night sky is as a resource. I've never, that's, that's really interesting. Like, tell me what you mean when you say that, that, that it's a resource. How is it a resource? So the res it's a, so the, the the park has, uh, we talk a lot about, Park Service talks a lot about uh, natural res natural and cultural resources and values, right? Um, and, you know, it can be viewed sort of as a, as a value as well, too. Some people in the Park Service kind of refer to it as, as more of a, a, a value that the parks provide. Um, but it also can be, if you think about it in terms of wildlife or, um, you know the sort of the overall ecology of an area and the, and the the overall environment i mean it is part of that environment 
So just like water is a is a part of that environment, or or air quality is a part of that environment, um, these natural cycles of light and dark that have always existed in mm. you know the environment is part of that ecosystem, um, and and so we tried to manage it as a resource, um, as just like you would you know the water or the air or the uh, and it's you know it's also interesting to kind of think of it that way, right? Is that is that all organisms sort of evolved in this natural regime of, of darkness and light. Uh, and when we disrupt that with artificial lighting, right, we're, we're disrupting a, uh, an important part of the environment. So in that, in that sense, um, it's, it's kind of, we've usually referred to it as a resource. Yep. Oh, go ahead, Jane. I was just going to no, say on that. So, like silence and darkness as resources, I, mm. I, I think that's wonderful way to look at it. Actually, the <clears throat> is it you mentioned ecology. Is there any studies or proof that there is an environmental or negative? Because a lot of times we don't consider we we often look at light as uh, we've until recently looked at light as always positive, right? And is there any evidence mm -hmm. that 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 not never mind light, but that not having a clear night sky on a regular basis causes ecological damage is there any evidence for that yeah yeah there is it's i would say that you know, the one sort of comprehensive guide um that i would point to would be um travis longcore's review of the literature mm -hmm. i think it was published in probably 2017. i mean it's pretty exhaustive i mean it goes through study mm -hmm. after study after study of um you know that of impacts and effects that that artificial light at night and reducing the, um, you know, changing those regimes of, of lightness and dark um, has on, um, I, there's, you know, sort of orientation. Um, so how animals and um, organisms orient themselves is an important part of that. You know, most migratory birds um, use night skies as a, as a cue for uh, their, their migration. Um, there's been shown to be reproductive effects on some animals in in different lighting levels. Um, there's uh, even been communi communication issues. So in a in the presence of a bright light, some um, amphibians and other uh, organisms will like reduce their calling, um, and mm -hmm. uh, you know because they're uh, presumably they're, be they're they're easier prey if they're in light. Uh, and so they'll reduce calling because they don't want to, um, you know, be even more, uh, you know, obvious. Um, there's been, uh, I think one of the, the studies that I highlighted on my website was a study of um, the interaction between mountain lions and deer uh, in mm. light polluted areas. Uh, so deer have been known to associate light pollution with or light with, um, nice green shrubbery and plants and green grass and and so they're drawn to um, high levels of light uh, for as, as a you know a, a, an abundant food source uh, and that is um, there was some some questions as to whether or not how that affected sort of predation of, of deer with you know from wildlife and and mountain lions in particular so they did some studies to see how mountain lions were were reacting to that shift in in deer populations and just in uh, 
distribution. And it turns out that deer or the mountain lions are following the deer into populated areas and they're hunting deer in these areas where there's more light pollution. Uh, so that increases the risk of, you know, mountain lion interactions and, and uh, confrontations with humans. Uh, so, you know, there's a, that's another one. Um, I think one more, just a quick example, I think is the, um, you know, you don't think about light pollution so much in the water column uh, in the oceans, mm. but, uh, but there's uh, another study I think I highlighted was that, you know, the, the biggest migration on earth happens every night when you know phytoplankton, um, zooplankton, uh, and others, microscopic organisms, crustaceans, they you know will go up in the water column at night and then back down in the water column during the day. Uh, so this happens every single night, every single day, um, and um, they're shown that light pollution that infiltrates into water columns near cities and things like that. Um, affects that migration uh, and uh, they've uh, demonstrated these impacts like all the way down to the the floor of the of a bay or an estuary around a, a city or a town that's that's lit it's incredible uh the they have actually likened the 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 migration of zooplankton to be like a jet propulsion in the waters that actually helps to churn the nutrients. And so when we shine light, we actually impede this migration. Um, and you also mentioned uh, birds being migratory uh, and using the, the map of the stars. Well, actually, so do whales. They also migrate. Mm -hmm. um, and what I think is really interesting that the Park Service ended up combining the Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division because there's something very similar to light and sound in that we can't really touch them, but we certainly feel them. And so it's a sort of sensory pollution. And and regarding whales, what's interesting is not only do whales astro-navigate, so if we're blocking a view of the stars, that will affect them, but they've also done studies now where whales have actually changed their octave in how they communicate with one another because of all the vehicle sounds that are that are being carried in water. So we're really yeah. kind of um, um, polluting with both light and sound, and this has a huge impact on wildlife. Um, now, you do a lot of writing, Frank, and um, I actually want to read some of your words back to you, if you don't mind. So this sure. is from your 11, your November 2 blog post. You said, uh -huh. do, yourself a do yourself a favor. On the next clear, moonless night, get in a car and drive. Drive out to the city or the suburbs where you most likely live and find a patch of sky. If you're like most people, as you gaze upon a star-filled sky, you will start to feel something that is rare, unique, and primal. You may feel like you're in the presence of something so vast that you can't fully comprehend its size or complexity. A bit of fear or anxiety washes over you. You feel diminished in presence. You might get a sense that you are connected to everything in that moment. That feeling, that sensation is awe. Talk to us about awe and what that oh. means to you with regard to the night sky. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the, for me, it's the most powerful aspect of the night sky. It is, it, it's, you know, that affects people in so many positive ways. Um, you know, the first, I guess the first real recent, uh, there's been a sort of a recent surge in research on awe. And one of the seminal papers um, was published in 2000, 
three, and it's by a team called uh, there's Kelter and Hate, um, and they had a description of awe that I just love. They said it that awe lies in the upper reaches of pleasure and in the on the boundary of fear. So in the upper reaches mm. of pleasure and the boundary of fear. I think that was just like such a great description of you know the feeling of awe, uh, and they talk about you know three different components of awe. So one is that you're in the presence of something vast and something you know immensely beautiful or powerful or just inspiring. You know, and this can be anything from like a symphony to you know a great idea. A lot of people sort of highlight like the birth of a child um, as these moments where you know you're you just feel like you're in the presence of something so much greater than yourself, uh, and that sort of creates this. Um, feeling of self-diminishment, right? So you feel insignificant, and that's another key aspect of awe. is in the is in the presence of this grand, um, majestic uh, experience. You feel like you're nothing. You know, you just feel like you're so insignificant that, uh, and and that's a really powerful. That tends out to be a really powerful feeling um, in terms of how people behave after they've, they've experienced awe. Uh, so that self-diminishment is, is kind of a big piece of it. Uh, the other piece is, is this, uh, uh, this need to accommodate, right? Or to have some sort of mental framework to understand what you're seeing or what you're experiencing. So those three aspects, you know, this, this being in the presence of something vast and immense, um, feelings, that's a feeling of self-diminishment and um, and this need to accommodate or this need to kind of wrap your head around the experience is sort of what makes up awe. It's sort of what, what awe consists of. Um, it's also been described as kind of a self-transcendent um, emotion. So you it sort of humbles you, um, you makes you sort of lose your self-awareness. Uh, and you, you, know, you, you sort of feel like, like you're separate or, you know, like the boundary between, they can sort of say like the boundary between yourself and the universe sort of like dissolves. Mm. So you feel like you're one with the universe. Uh, and those are pretty consistent descriptions of the experience of awe. It's like an ego death. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you you become nothing, you know, and you are just one with the universe. You, you're connected to other people around you. Uh, and, you know, you sort of see these sort of connections that you don't see under normal circumstances. You know, and so not surprisingly, right, that's been a, a, a mainstay of most religious and spiritual writings and thought. Um, so in Buddhist thought, uh, the, the Buddha teaches that the experience of the sublime or, you know, the awe that's what is I was thinking a of. signal. Yes. Yeah, yeah, sublime, right? Sublime um, is the it's, word. It's a, yep. It is a. Um, when you experience that, that's a signal that you're approaching enlightenment. And it's um, unmeasurable. Yeah. That's teaching. the key of it. Yes. It's like yep. the, we we humans cannot measure the sublime. That's the problem. Exactly. Yep. And I think that's a, that is that's so so the idea of measuring or quantifying beauty or quantifying you know experiences like that it's it's so hard to do right but. So when you so when people talk about the benefit of a night sky, you know it it's hard to put that into into uh, concrete 
way, you know, methods. Like it's hard to it's hard to to nail that down. Right? You're right. It's a really hard concept, but it's a huge part of the of the value of of the night sky. It's like dark it's matter. That, you know, it's like yeah. dark matter. It's like <laughs> scientists don't even know what it is. Really, they know it's there, and it's unmeasurable to them. So they they kind of don't acknowledge it in a sense. Right. Yeah, exactly. In the, in the lighting business, we have a, a unique thing, right? So um, we know what hurts humans. Okay. So for mm-hmm. example, I think I might've said this on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast or this one, but you know, if you want to know how to damage a human with light, just go to a casino. Okay. <laughs> you know, shine 5,000 Kelvin bright white light into somebody's eyes and they'll give you their paycheck when they don't want to, when they don't mean <laughs> to. Right. So we know what yeah. damages and we can measure these damages. We can measure these things. And whenever it's like, whenever we get into this dark sky issue, and this is what Jane's been fighting for for so long is that people don't even know the, what they're starving for that, you know, the name of the podcast starting for darkness. Yep. And because those, you just described it best I've ever heard, Jane, it's, it's a subliminal, a subliminal experience that's very difficult to, to, to transmit to someone else mm-hmm. that hasn't had it. And also it's yep. impossible for scientists to measure. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and then there's, you know, I'm teaching a class right now in, in environmental economics and we're the, one of the big topics is, you know, how do you value natural resources, right? How, mm-hmm. just all the challenges that that in, entails and, you know, and and those are va- those are natural resources you can touch, right? And you can see, and you can feel. And you know, when you have resources that are that you, that aren't concrete, you know, that aren't tangible, um, valuing those is you know an order of magnitude more difficult. Uh, there really is no good um, methods or methodologies for placing any any sort of economic or, or, you know, even social value on those types of, of resources. Um, you know, I, it, it's just a, it, the, the eye I think is such a powerful emotion. And, and I think we, you know, we kind of need to take advantage of that as night sky advocates, right? It's just the power of the night sky to elicit these feelings and these emotions is something that, you know, is not as, pro- is not as pronounced in other resources. I mean, this is the ultimate source of awe, right? It's, there's no, there's, I mean, if you think about it, right, if you, if you look into, you have an experience where you feel insignificant and you're looking at the, it's into something that's vast and immense and incomprehensibly powerful, what else is, can give you that experience that's greater than the, the night sky? I mean, you're literally, looking into the universe, right? So that is like the, the ultimate f- source of, of that feeling of just being insignificant. Um, you know, so I think and that's a really powerful away. thing. Yeah, exactly. it's been taken away by a bit of a magic trick. Amen. Because, yes. because we are, you know, the, the adaptation of the eye is not something that, you know, before I learned of it, I probably wasn't all that aware of all the tricks of how it works that you it takes a minute to adapt to a light environment and an hour to adapt to a dark environment and so you know if you come out of your office at five o'clock and you've just come from a lit environment you may not notice the light pollution that has crept up over the last five years you just may not notice so it's a it's a very tricky situation because it's been taken away so slowly uh and so people have have lost access to the stars that they they sort of don't remember having. 
and that makes it very yeah. difficult. And so, so you worked with, uh, did you work with visitors at the parks? And which parks um, were you, I, did you work most closely with? So the, um, so the, the Natural Sounds and Ice Guys Division was sort of a headquarters office. Um, so mm -hmm. we worked with all of the other parks. Um, you know, we were sort of there uh, to provide a service to them. Uh, so when a park would have an issue with lighting uh, or they wanted to get an IDA dark sky certification, uh, they would contact us and then we would work with them. And then also we, we would do things like, you know, providing guidance and, and policy for the National Park Service as a whole. Uh, and so it was more of an overarching uh, program that kind of worked with all the, the parks in the network. What were some of your favorite lighting installations that enabled human activity to be safe at the parks but didn't impact wildlife? So one of the ones that we highlighted a lot um, was a, sort of a retrofit that we did at um, uh, Big Bend National Park. Uh, and there is a visitor center um, and some administrative buildings and uh, you know, some other sort of like um, ancillary buildings around the visitor center that were uh, pretty bright. And we took some pictures of the, of the area before the retrofit. And you could see light um, hitting the cliffs behind the visitor center. And you could see light kind of even further back hitting some of the, the hills behind the, um, you know, down the valley. And um, it was pretty obvious with the photography that, that we were using. Uh, and then we did a retrofit, and I think there was a lighting company involved. I think it might have been Musco or somebody like that um, that uh, donated some lighting fixtures. And we retrofit that area and then went back and took pictures. And all of the light that was spilling up onto the cliff behind the uh, the nature center and, uh, you know, there was all the light that we had detected down the valley from the um, the buildings were was greatly diminished. I mean, it was barely there. Uh, so it was a really mm -hmm. strong uh, example that we used quite a bit to say, like, look, this is, this is not difficult. It's not technically challenging. It's not cost exactly. prohibitive. It's, it's not, mm -hmm. it, it's easy to, to fix. And, and, you know, we use that as an example of like, look at the, the benefit that we can get with just, you know, a, a fairly small project um, that replaced, you know, the, the, old style lights with newer technologies and newer best practices. It's just so possible. And, and this is something that I try to convey all the time, which is that we have all the lighting technology. We just are thinking yep. improperly and we're relying on. Yeah, go on. I, I like the way that just, I, I, mean, I thought you were finished there, but I, you know, that's that lag there, that latency, but I'm so excited because I like the terminology you use like spilling. Like people don't talk mm. about it that way enough. Like the light is spilling. It's being wasted. It's it, like, never mind yep. the dark side. It's just a waste of light. It's spilling over there onto this, 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 uh, this um, area where it doesn't belong and it's a trespass. Like we're actually developing the terminology to speak about this in real time. Like as we, you know, Jane and I, like that, when you said spilling, I really like the not spreading. It's spilling over there. And we don't want to spill our light over there. We don't want to, you know, right. and, and the way, the way we speak about it is starting to change in it. And that makes me somewhat optimistic. Are you optimistic? You know, I am, I, you know, I think, um, and I think I've, I've, I've heard this line, even on 
your earlier podcast too is that the point made that we have we we so it's I think LED and solid state lighting right is kind of a double edged sword right it has problems and you know it's got the the blue spike and it's good it causes a little bit more sky glow and it you know has more effects on people's physiology and you know but i think the lighting industry is aware of that and i think they're working on those issues um you know and um but the the positive side is that it is so controllable it is so um you know, you can do anything you want to with those lights. You know, you can change the CCTs. You can, you know, you can dim them. You can, you know, cut the light off at a at a discrete point. Um, and you know, they're just so controllable and and precise that you know, within this potential problem, right? You also have all the solutions. And and so it's a matter of you know, they're not like I said before, they're not prohibitively expensive you know they're not technically challenging where you have to you know need some grand engineer to do this this you know work or you know and it's it's something that is definitely um so it does make me feel positive it does make me feel like you know what we just need to kind of get a handle on the negative aspects which we're doing and then we need to sort of educate people and get um people using them in, in a responsible and effective way. And I think it sounds to me, and I think about this in terms of like other environmental problems, uh, mm. other environmental problems to, you know, if you wanted to, if you want to clean up a stream, right. You need to, you need chemistry, right. If you, you need, can clean up a stream, if you can right. clean it, right. You so know, like it's, yeah, it's technically challenging. It's expensive. It's you know complicated. But the, the, you could make it worse. The, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And but I think to clean you know to clean up the night sky, right? To, to get rid of light pollution, it's not those things. It's not expensive. It's not challenging technically. It's not you know difficult. It's just I think it's just being it's making people aware and um, mm -hmm. making people understand the value of it, and you know getting them to to want to protect the night sky and getting and the I lighting then, industry on then, board like like we're, yeah. what we're what we're trying to do like jane and i's project this podcast is only part of it we're trying to get the lighting industry on board with this and largely i would say that what's they're rather um indifferent is the right description mm -hmm. i would say they're yeah, indifferent i would agree it. with that i think you know, like they, they need more education, they need more awareness, they need more leadership from the, um, from the certification bodies, UL, DLC, IES. These places need to get involved, like no maximum light levels, only minimum light levels, no separation between yeah. vertical and horizontal foot candles, this kind of thing we need to get a handle on. But it's totally yeah. a solvable environmental issue that could be taken care of in 10 years and everybody yeah. would get rich in the lighting business. That's how I feel too. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it is something that's so achievable, you know, yeah. so it's a, in a way it's, it's, it's encouraging to be involved in an, in an environmental issue where you see the solution and it's achievable and it's just a matter of implementing it. You know, I think that's a, a rarity in the environmental world. And I think that's a, um, you know, an important, it, it does make me feel good to be in this, in this field because it is something that we can solve. It's just, it's just getting the word out. It's just making people change their behaviors.
And what we get back is the night sky. Imagine, imagine if all exactly. of humanity had access to the night sky every night, what that would do for the quality of our thoughts and the quality of our actions. It would give us an immense perspective and advantage upon what we do every single day and just give us a little step back to think, maybe I could redirect here. We've, we've stopped taking that moment in our lives. And so we're just plodding on with ideas that we're not checking to see if they're good enough to pursue. And I think a lot yeah. of us feel, especially in the pandemic, while we're kind of all trapped at home and our only access to the world is through digital interface, that we're kind of on this hamster wheel of responsive, uh, of being responsive. And I, I'm thinking you know, to myself even, that there isn't that vantage for bigger thought. So what we would gain is just so much more than just, you know, not having light pollution, that we're, we're losing something so immensely powerful. Um, I was actually on your Instagram today, Frank, and uh, your latest photo is super interesting because it really shows what light pollution does to the night sky. It's a uh, for the listeners. Um, you can follow Frank. It's he's you're at Frank Tarina, correct? Yes, correct. I, I, yes, you're at Frank Tarina on Instagram, <laughs> and um, the photo is of the sky. And then you can see two cities off in the distance, uh, Moab, and then I think what was the other one? Uh, it's Grand in Junction. Colorado. Grand Junction. Grand Junction. Which one is, which one is the blue light? Uh, is that a Grand Junction? Because one has that's that's a very obvious. That's Moab. Oh, Moab. Okay, so Grand Junction yeah. has high pressure sodium lighting, and mm -hmm. and Moab has the brand new LED lighting, and you can see it immediately from the photo. Um, but what you are also showing, not just in how much better. Uh, or how much worse the new LED lighting can affect the night sky. But you're really seeing the, the glare that these two sets of city lights are creating in the night sky. I think it's so important because I don't think people really get to see that so often. And you're also seeing the impacts of different types of legislation and where they end up in the impacts of light of the night sky. So I know you have a section on your website where you where you're talking about legislation and you're kind of agnostic. You're saying this is not an endorsement, but this is the, the types of regulations that are happening. So in your experience and in your analysis, um, what are some cities that are standouts that you see that are doing well and that, you know, how is this this sort of evolution of thought in terms of regulation um, evolving? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think um, obviously the, the cities that are doing the best are cities with observatories nearby, right? Because that was sort of the mm. impetus for protecting night skies and reducing light pollution. So cities like, you know, uh, Tucson with, with Kid Peak Observatory and some others, Mount Lemmon, um, the, uh, and um, Flagstaff is another one that has been, you mm -hmm. know, because of a, a locale, you know, location and, and proximity to uh, important uh, astronomical observation sites, they, they've done very well. Um, the towns in Hawaii are also very careful and um, have some good ordinances for protecting night mm -hmm. skies. Uh, so it's, it is, you know, I think it's starting to branch out into other areas. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of, of international dark sky 
communities, right? And um, in Colorado, there's a, a town called Westcliff uh, that has gotten, they were one of the first uh, dark sky communities that IDA certified. Uh, and they have, uh, if you walk, you go down there and, and it's about three hours from here. Uh, and it's right at the base of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. And it's a beautiful site and it's dark. It is dark. Like, I remember going to a, a gas station there. Um, I think there's only one, <laughs> and it's kind of a small town, but it's it's um, you know the it has a canopy like you know gas stations, but the lights are amber. You know they they don't blind you. You know you can still see very well, um, and uh, it's just such a you know it's just astonishing almost to see a, a gas station that's lit like that. Um, mm. and you know, so I think they, there are a lot of communities that are really kind of taking, um, the first step towards, uh, passing lighting ordinances, uh, and, um, you know, and making night skies, uh, a priority in their planning and their development. Uh, and I think, you know, and I think, I also think that astrotourism is kind of playing a role in that. Uh, there is this sort of burgeoning area of tourism where people are traveling to see, you know, exemplary night skies. And, you know, I think some cities are going, hey, we want to get in on that, right? And we have pretty good night skies. Let's make them better. Let's start uh, advertising and uh, as our night skies as something to come here and see. Uh, and so you get this, you get more, um, you're starting to see more of that transition too. So I think there are um, a lot of good examples out there now uh, that that of of good lighting ordinances that that really are effective in in sort of reducing overall light levels. So, you want me to jump in? I got a ton of things here. Yeah, jump in. Okay, yeah, jump in. So, uh, so yes. Yeah, so, sometimes it's it's like just listening you don't stop you know what i mean but anyway so we talked <laughs> yeah. a little bit about um uh you know thought and awe right but there's something that beyond awe to me that that like that no no that beyond thought that awe takes you to like how do i solve this problem get in my car turn on the car wake up in the morning all this rigmarole that we go through that's thought that's thinking thinking but there's a sentience above that that we share with like whales and elephants you can see you look at an elephant and you can see it's sad you know i don't know if you ever go to the zoo i used to go to the zoo all the time and i used to yeah. watch the chimps yeah. and the elephants and the elephants always look so sad you know i look at yeah. them and they look sad to me you know you look in their eyes you can look in their eyes like they see you you know, and so there's a sentence. I think that what what happens when you experience dark skies or these the silence, like even people come into my studio here, which is all sound protected, and the first thing they say when they sit down is, "It's so quiet in here." That's the first thing they say. Everybody says that they sit down and they say, "It's so quiet in here," and so it's like all of a sudden they've released this pressure from sound and light and everything that's going on. But what I what I was wondering is. Is it humility that we're lacking? Is it like that? Is the is that what happens after you feel that awe? You're not thinking. You're in a space. You can't even stand up. You talked about vertigo. It leads to like a humility that is so important. And I think so lost right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I I do agree with that. You know. I think it was funny when I wrote that piece on awe. 
Um, it literally was mm. the, the night before the election um, in <laughs> mm. November. And and I was sitting there thinking, I'm reading all this about awe and, and how you know it makes you feel compassion to people and it makes you feel empathy and it makes you feel connected to people and you know and and it makes you act in a more ethical way and you know it makes you generous it has all these like pro-social behaviors that are associated with awe you know and i'm reading you know i'm watching the news and watching the election results and i'm thinking like god we need this you know we really do need this this sense of awe in more people's lives it's so, so absent you know, it's, it's once you realize it, it is. it's so obviously absent you know yeah. on, it's so obvious that it's absent yep. once you it's like you can't it's like a negative number you know it's like you you, cal you can calculate it on paper but you can't see negative numbers they're indicating an absence of something that's what negative numbers yeah. are right it's absence it's yep. not there but when you when you actually tune into it it's so obvious that people are lacking in some sort of spiritual something that's given was given to them every night when they went to bed before there was electric light exactly that's a, that's a really good way of putting it i think is it is you know we had this once you know we had this a hundred years ago i mean it was there and and you could go out every night and look up and feel a sense of awe and now now you gotta you know drive to the grand canyon you gotta go to the you know the redwoods in california you gotta you know it's not present as much in your daily life and i think and i think that, that a lot of the research that showed all these positive benefits from awe um it was the, the the language they used in the study was is was that people who experience awe regularly show these these mm. positive social you know behaviors um so it's it's like you need this sort of regularly in your life to you know to, to sort of have these sort of positive pro-social um, behaviors and you know and I think that the other thing that's really powerful about awe is that you know what what drives people to action isn't so much information right you can you can pump people full of information about night skies and darkness and the effects on wildlife and and you know and it, that alone isn't going to be too effective I mean it's been shown in study after study that you know, people are really good at ignoring information that don't align with their with their previous, you know, their preconceived notions, right? And and so information alone doesn't really get to people, and it doesn't change their behavior. But if you connect to them emotionally, and you connect to them, you know, their heart and their you know their gut and their their feelings, then they're much more likely to change their behavior. And uh, you know, so that's the power, I think, of, of awe. It's like if we can ex if we can make people see this, like make people experience this, you know, it affects them emotionally. And, and that's what really changes people's behavior. It makes people support an idea. It makes people call their congressman. It makes people do things, right? Because you're, you're hitting them in an emotional level. And, and that's really politically, socially, I mean, that's a very powerful thing. Uh, and, you know, and that's really what I'm trying to do. I want to try to, with the photography and, and the writing, and, and I want to get to people, not just intellectually, you know, I spent years at the Park Service writing reports and analyzing data and, you know, talking to scientists and, and you know, and, I, and that's, you know, I, I don't discard that. I mean, that is a really important thing. We have to have the, the data, we have to have the understanding. And, but I think, 
to really affect change, you really need to kind of hit people in a different, you know, in a different way. You have to hit people in that 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 emotional, um, you know, feeling area. And and I think that's what I want to try to do with with my website. And as I move forward, and this as this sort of develops and evolves, is to try to make that connection with people emotionally, and um, you know, and try to spur them to action. They're starving for it, Frank. They're starving exactly. for this. Exactly. Like it's yeah. so obvious when you like you want like the election or whatever you want to see two congressmen, you know, basically throwing mud at each other verbally. It's like right. Get a grip, man. Like yeah. they're star- they, they, Like they're they're absolutely starving to have an ego death and have some awe and then have some humility. Mm. Like it's it, right. it's so obvious. I, yeah, and that yeah, humility, that's, you know, that's, that's the that's the self diminishment, right? That's mm-hmm. the self diminishment yeah. piece of awe. You become, you know, you see yourself as just this tiny little speck in the universe, and you're insignificant. And that has, you know, and some of the studies have tied those pro social behaviors to that feeling of self diminishment. If you have that feeling of, you know, not being that important, then you get all of these. That that's sort of linked to a lot of these, um, you know empathy and, and compassion and all of those, those other um, aspects. I, I totally agree with everything that you're saying, Frank, and so much so that you've almost put me in a listening state uh, because I just <laughs> really feel so strongly for what you're saying. And, you know, why I got into this topic is because of wildlife. It, it is mm-hmm. so scary to me how we are completely changing the night time environment so much that it affects microorganisms all the way to the largest organisms on the planet like whales it's it's every single organism and yet at the same time wildlife isn't going to trigger people to change their behaviors we have to hit them where it hurts and let them right. remember the night sky so that's i mean i of course would love to have a view of the night sky for my own ego death and my own experiences to enrich them but i feel that in terms of human survival we absolutely need to do this for wildlife so we're coming up on an hour um mike do you have any final questions for frank um you know it's there's so much i'd love to have you on again frank just to kind of we kind of just kept going yeah. back to this this sense of awe. Like once you lay, you started off in the beginning laying out that unbelievable experience you had with your wife where you closed your eyes and laid down. And we just kept mm. kind of looping back to that over and over. And yeah. I wish we could figure out what that was specifically. Yeah. Like, like there's a psychological, if you trip your doppelganger right here. And it's like, this is what people <laughs> are seeking with psychedelic drugs. This is what they're seeking. Yeah. You know, with the ayahuasca yep. movement and all this kind of stuff, this is what they're after. And to me, I don't think there's a difference between drinking ayahuasca tea in Costa Rica or doing what you did with your wife at the beginning. I think it's exactly mm. the same thing. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it definitely has that same psychological impact. You know, I mean, it's like I said, I keep saying the same thing, but it's just, it's just powerful. It's just, it has a lot of power. It, it it can motivate people like nothing else. It can, you know, it can bring people to a, a deeper understanding of this issue, 
right? And I think that's an important part of it, right? You can understand this issue on a on an intellectual level. Like I, you know, I when I first started getting into night sky stuff and light pollution, I mean, that's how I was looking at it. I was looking at it, you know, I knew what light was, I knew how it refracted in the atmosphere, I understood, you know, how it affected people, I understood how it, but it was all on this very like intellectual level. Um, but when you start getting under the night sky and start experiencing it, mm. you know, then you start to feel it in, in a different way. It's on a different level and, and you, you're compelled to action. You want to, um, just real quick, there's one other thing that, that uh, kind of, of struck me, um, with, with respect to this feeling and the power of it is the, it's the overview effect. Um, so astronauts who have been in space and have seen Earth from space, um, they all talk about this this feeling of awe that they had um, mm -hmm. when they were up there. And, you know, it's a, they talk about um, this feeling of awe for the planet. Um, they talk about this um, profound understanding of the interconnectedness of life. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have this renewed sense that, you know, we need to take care of the environment. Uh, and, you know, and that's just from this, you know, admittedly, this profound experience of seeing the earth from space, right? But, you know, that can, we can, that can work on people here on earth too, right? We can create mm -hmm. that overview effect with people just by ex having them experience the night sky. Uh, and, you know, I think that's the, the area that, that I think, you know, we need to really, again, as advocates for the night sky, I think we really need to be able to jump on that component of night sky and really use it to kind of move people. There's that famous photograph, the, the little blue dot, which is, was the <clears> first <throat> photograph of earth taken from how many ever a thousand miles away. And, and the right. quote, I believe it's Carl Sagan, but he said that every person who ever lived was on that dot. And that all of the things yep. that we love is on that dot. And it's, it is just a profound idea to to take that step back and and you're so right frank that that vantage can be taken underneath the night sky as well do you have anything right. left that you want to share in these final moments i have lots of things i'd love to share Me too. <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> so i would you know like i said I, I think there are a lot of other topics we haven't touched on um you know but i i would love to you know continue this at some point i think there's there was a lot of really good points that are sort of on the table that we kind of barely scratched um but we could kind of dig into a little more but um we'll kind of leave it there for now i guess well we'd love to have you back and share in the awe together because your description is amazing and profound well thank you very much i really appreciate that thank you frank thank you Psst. Psst. hey don't go anywhere yet because we have some instructions for you Michael and Greg from Get a Grip on Lighting. Yeah, we do the ads for Starving for Darkness. You got to go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Light made easy, Greg. You've been able to rattle that off real well. Uh, there's a new line of exterior fixtures from Keystone that they have available, and they're going to continue to expand on it, and they're doing things right. And one of those that they're doing right is in their wall packs. They're making them full cutoff. That's going to eliminate undesirable sky glow and glare. And that's what we all want. It looks nice. It fits a profile of a lot of your old nasty fixtures and has multiple wattages and kelvins that can cover you there. Get rid of those old nasties. 
go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Thanks for listening to Starving for Darkness. Bye for now.